Refugees on the run, but is Europe equipped to cope? What chance of a summer peace deal in Syria? Defence spending in Britain and France. And have you made your bed this morning? If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. Life lessons from the US admiral who took down Osama bin Laden. The exodus from northern Africa and Syria of refugees from as far away as the Horn of Africa has not stopped. But the economics and resources of countries determined to help the thousands a week crossing the Mediterranean have almost dried up. The lead country in this, Italy, is suggesting that in the next two months as many as 80,000 refugees could come their way. They can't cope. I'm joined by Paul Rogers, who is Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Professor Paul Rogers, for the past seven years, this has been handled as a humanitarian rescue operation, but it's changing into something which demands far more from every country in Europe. It is, because essentially the overall pressure of refugees and uh, migrants trying to move into Europe is going to grow steadily in the coming years. Most of what has happened so far has been due to uh, short-term climate droughts, uh, lots of problems of conflict and the rest. But beyond this, we have the slowly but surely developing problem of climate disruption as a worldwide phenomenon. And you have a belt right around Europe from West Africa right across the Middle East in which things are going to get very much worse for millions of people. And many of them will become more desperate and want to move to somewhere where they might get a better life. It's something which Europe just hasn't come to terms with in terms of the big picture. And the smaller picture, which is bad enough as we have at the present time, is an indicator of what will come unless we can go for much more radical solutions. Christopher Lee, you have recently returned from a conference in Austria addressing this very subject. What was discussed and what kind of solutions are being offered? Well, the first thing, first thing is that there isn't a European solution. Um, Europe cannot, doesn't have the structure and we're talking about numbers that you can't say, oh, well, I'll take 20,000 or 100,000 or 1,000. Then what do you do? What do you do with people? They're not sort of just digits. What do you do with them? How do you put them into society? Can you put them into society? And that becomes a very practical problem for a lot of the, uh, European countries. But Italy uh, has probably got the f front of this more than anybody else, and that's largely because many not all, obviously, but many from North Africa, for certainly from Libya, come. I went down to Lampedusa, and Lampedusa, the Lampedusa I've known for sort of 40 years, is completely transformed. It is something which you would not recognise. Sicily is becoming part of that. The Italians say we can't carry on doing this. What the Italians are about to do, they're going to produce a, a, like a visa, uh, a, like a, as if it was a sort of a, 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 a European visa, and they're saying, we're not going to let these people move on, in theory, but they will be able to use this visa and travel around European countries to have a look at uh, Europe, etc. And, of course, the answer is, how many will actually come back? And that was one of the frightening things that was, was, was being said in, in, in Vienna. You know, once you, once you, once you open the tap, um, you've got to recognise two things. One is you won't be able to control it, and the second thing, 
it's a, it's a never-ending pipeline. They're still going to be coming in. The Italians are saying it could be sort of 70,000, 80,000 people coming across from North, uh, North Africa before the, the, the winter Mediterranean opens up. Paul Rogers, what is the uh, potential for instability and insecurity that could be caused by these movements of people? Well, there are three problems. One is that within the countries that are receiving them, you will get uh, much more hawkish political groups saying we must close the doors. And that's because in some ways the weakest people in the existing societies are the ones who basically will, will suffer, mo suffer the most. The second thing is that as people become more and more desperate to move, and remember these are much more educated and literate people than 40, 50 years ago, uh, then if they can't do it, the frustration will develop into the potential for very radical movements. You'll get sort mm. of revolts from the margins. And thirdly, we still see things in terms of the old idea, the crude term, lidism, you keep the lid on things rather than go to the underlying causes. The underlying causes are both economic and environmental Indeed. and at some stage we've got to meet them. Christopher Lee, um, we saw uh, the involvement of HMS Bulwark for example in the past rescuing uh, refugees from the sea. What are the implications just briefly for the UK Armed Forces? Uh, UK Armed Forces, certainly the Navy, has got very limited resources not to do a job but to continue doing it, and that's one of the huge, huge problems, is sort of supply, and also under the command system. But it's also the purpose. They do not have terms of reference, which any can be easily understood. So you pick up guys uh, in, in a rubber boat. What do you do? Uh, how far do you, is your job to, to sort of stretch them along? But over this, and this was what was happening in Vienna, uh, Vienna, over this was a simple question. How do you explain that this... The whole refugee thing is a very small part of something much bigger, uh, and that is the whole climate change. People say, hang on, it cannot be. And if it is, it doesn't impress us because we don't have to bother about it because there's nothing we can do about it. But that's where the argument starts. Until people can understand that, we are actually in the most terrible situation is that there is no solution. There is no solution to what we're experiencing at the moment. Well, let's go to Syria now. Four de-escalation zones plus an agreement for a ceasefire in principle. That sounds like the right conditions for at least a talking peace process, or have we been here too often to believe that anything is good in that war? Well, let's talk to Hamish de Breton-Gordon, who is a former army officer now advising NGOs in Syria. Good to speak to you today, Hamish. Is this a window of opportunity? Well, I hope so. I mean, it's been amazingly frustrating for people like myself who, who are involved day to day in Syria over the last sort of couple of months trying to get engagement, particularly in the UK, to look at Syria because um, it is just as desperate as it's been, you know, pretty much over the last five years. But as you say, I mean, there, there is a little chink of hope at the moment with uh, Trump and Putin agreeing the ceasefire in southern Syria, the G20, two weeks ago. Um, there is an opportunity to try and move forward. And also I get the feeling from all the, my friends and colleagues who I speak to regularly in Syria and Syrians who live outside Syria, you know, everybody is completely run out of energy uh, and, uh, and completely fed up with the whole war. And I think people are, are really prepared to now sit at the table and discuss almost anything to come for, for a, some sort of solution. And as, as you'll be aware, the UN... Geneva peace process, which is just broken up in Geneva, which is the diplomatic effort to find a, a, a solution, ha has been ongoing. And there, there is sort of general agreement. It's very imperfect. But if we can build on the ceasefire in southern Syria, 
um, there is an opportunity, but there are many challenges to that. What more do you think the UN should be doing? Well, I think, number one, the UN must be involved. The ceasefire in southern Syria is, yeah, I mean, there are about 10 transgressions a day at the moment, and it's monitored by Russian forces on the ground and Iranians. Uh, and being so close to Israel, the Israelis are not at all happy with that, um, and they're frequently attacking um, Hezbollah and, and Iranian positions. But in my opinion, the only people who could monitor the ceasefire would be the UN. And the other thing coupled with that is to make sure that humanitarian aid, particularly in the southern Syria, a big town called Dara, which has been siege, under siege for many years, and actually it hasn't had any aid for about six months. People are starving, as, as allegedly over half a million are in the rest of the country. And I think it's very apposite with the fall of or virtual fall of the so-called Islamic State in Mosul. Uh, many of us thinking back to 2003 and concerned that we don't repeat those mistakes. Well, you know, in what people need in Syria is some sort of governance and people are prepared to look at whatever that might mean at the moment, but also humanitarian aid and reconstruction well, and I allowing mean, you the talk about governance to begin with. You talk about governance, but President Assad will say, I am the government, let me do it. Well, that's absolutely right. And, uh, and what is interesting in the last few months, many leaders like Macron in France and, and even Trump and others are saying that Assad has a role to play, certainly in the short and medium term. And I think actually some of the, 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 uh, the Syrian emigres would also agree that you know, if we are going to come to a solution, then Assad probably does need to play a, play a role in future. And it's, it's the sort of least worst option. But I think we're in a position where, you know, with 5 million refugees, 11 million IDPs and a country of a population over only of 18 million, you know, the people are prepared to discuss, you know, anything at the moment. But fundamentally, we need a ceasefire to stop the killing first. And secondly, we need aid to get in there. And, the, and it's bountiful in the surrounding countries. But without the UN, I don't think it's going to go any further. Professor Paul Rogers is a professor of peace studies at Bradford University. Uh, what's your take on this, Paul? I would agree absolutely with Hamish. As far as southern Syria is concerned, uh, there is some possibility. I would agree fully that the UN has to be involved. The problem, though, doesn't relate so much to southern Syria. It's what is happening in the north, where the attempt to unseat ISIS, Islamic State Daesh, in Raqqa is proving very difficult. There have been two very interesting reports that are allied to this just in the last 24 hours. One from Turkish sources, that the United States now has eight forward operating bases in the Kurdish part of northeast Syria, and two air bases, one of which can take fully, sort of full C-17s and the rest. And the other report is of a flood of heavy army into northeast Syria, again American, to support the Kurds. So I think because of the problems in Raqqa in trying to defeat Daesh, the United States is putting a lot more force in to aid the Kurds in that process. Now that again is away from what Hamish is talking about, I agree fully with him as far as southern Syria is concerned, but what is happening in the north is also something which has to be watched. So Hamish, uh, talk about the north then. Is, are we talking about potentially a divided country if you're going to get some kind of stability in the south? Well. It's the added complication, uh, and exactly as just been said, in, in northern Syria, we've got the Syrian Kurds, the YPG being supported by the US, uh, as, as we've heard, fighting in Raqqa and doing the heavy lifting and successful. But of course, we, we've also got the Turks who want to secure their southern border, and they are very much at loggerheads with the Syrian Kurds 
and, and the PKK, which are in effect Turkish Kurds, they view as terrorists. Now, in the area that I know particularly well, northwest Syria, which is sort of Aleppo and Idlib, you know, get, we have a relative peace at the moment, similar to the southern area. It is a de-escalation zone. There's no sort of agreed ceasefire. But that's another area we can build on. But by focusing on the humanitarian peace and the UN peace, we all, everybody in this conflict agrees that we must defeat Daesh. And that is, appears to be happening in Raqqa. But the, fight, the, the, the solution, overall solution to Syria, it's, it's really, you know, whatever can be done. And it might well be, you know, divided with some sort of Kurdish area in the north. And the Iraqi Kurds in, in Iraq are having a referendum on the 25th right. of September on their future. So it is very complex. I just get the feeling now people are, you know, are prepared to discuss the undiscussable of a few months ago. All right, we'll leave it there. Hamish Breton Gordon, thank you for your time today. Now, it's a year since the so-called coup in Turkey. President Erdogan now has tens of thousands of people in jail. Christopher, bleak situation, really. Bleak situation. 50,000, maybe 50,000 in, 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 in jail. Um, to the day... Uh, are, you, are, we, are you thinking not rightly so? Uh, we don't know. That's another side of this. I mean, for example, 7,000 arrested in the past, uh, I think, about eight days. Uh, and arrested for certain things that you think, hang on, that doesn't make sense at all. For example, and the most dangerous, I think, the, um, part of this, if you think we're talking about a NATO ally, we're talking about somebody who in, theoretically wants to join the EU, we're talking about somebody we have to negotiate with uh, 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 over uh, Cyprus. So we ought to be thinking in along the same lines. What we don't do, hang on, what we don't do is bomb in there and go and arrest the head of amnesty, which is what he has done. And there's a piece of paper, a letter sent to a, a, a diplomat, say, two years ago, saying, oh, you shouldn't be selling uh, weapons to the Turks. You know, the sort of thing that amnesty sends out every week to almost everybody. Uh, on that grounds, the head of amnesty, who could be, not be heard in a court of law now for perhaps 18 months to explain anything, that created what has happened he will go on like that. Nothing is created in in a terms of uh, a, a debate within the NATO, within the EU, um, and not what even. What are the implications, just briefly, for NATO? They've got they've got somebody uh, on the eastern eastern side of NATO who they think is tremendous. It's the third most important country uh, in NATO in military terms. Whether you agree with it in its, in its moral terms is in, in entirely another matter. But that's never raised now. Still to come, what's going on with the French armed forces and make your bet, a US Admiral's top tip for a lifetime of success. The chairman-elect of the Defence Select Committee, Dr Julian Lewis, has told BFPS he will recommend a special hearing into the new F-35 Lightning II jet. It comes after the Times newspaper reported that the aircraft will be unable to function properly because of defence cuts. Well, here he is talking to BFPS earlier this week. Well, let me put it this way. I think the concerns raised by the Times on the issue of a possible extra hidden cost for each aircraft amounting to up to 50% of the expected cost is something that I'm sure the Ministry of Defence will be working overtime to disprove. 
I would expect that to be the case. The earliest that the new committee can be appointed is when we're back for a fortnight in September and if it's at all physically possible I will try to have a special short hearing in the second week in September and that would enable us to include this topic in the overall procurement report that was almost ready for publication when the general election intervened. Christopher, what are the exact concerns about the procurement of this aircraft? Um, they come in two forms. Um, I mean, the most recent, and it's just an excuse, really, Martin Marinetta, they're the people behind the F-35. They're the biggest military supplier to the United States uh, Department of Defense. They've just got a 5% increase in their, in, in their profits. Um, and that arouses sort of uh, suspicions at the very, very least. It is because the Americans have been telling the British, the one officer whose job is it is to sort of check that the Americans are telling the okay thing on this, on the technicalities. The Americans have been saying, look, we check this out. You don't have to worry. We check that costs are okay. It looks, though, as if costs on the F-35 are at least 50% higher than they said it was going to be. So apart from the costs... It doesn't make it a bad aircraft, by the way. It is probably still the best aircraft eventually flying. And the concerns about the capabilities of the aircraft, what, what are they exactly? Well, the, the, it depends which variant you're talking, uh, which variant you're talking about. The ones that the one is that's, that's the going in, one the UK, in, is, the one the UK is, is buying, and which the RAF will be flying as well. It's not just the Navy. Um, relatively speaking, there are few fewer problems there at the moment, and there's sort of problems you get in any aircraft in in development. So it, w- that's not the problem. The F-35, it's got far more to do with one is costing, which can go up because there's a variable proportion in this. Uh, secondly, and and that is the maintenance agreements. Uh, thirdly how often you will have to run those maintenance agreements and what will is it operational, therefore is operational capability be. Those are the things that are natural to, 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 to have in any new aircraft that's being introduced. The problem being is this aircraft that's being introduced is the only one we've got like that. And there's a huge suspicion, probably rightly so, with how the Department of Defense has managed its relationship with the uh, MOD in London. Well, let's go across the channel now because the head of the French Armed Forces has resigned after a public disagreement with President Emmanuel Macron over cuts to the defence budget. General Pierre de Villiers says he's no longer able to guarantee what he called the robust defence force he believes is necessary for the protection of France. Uh, Christopher, quite a spat. Well, uh, Pierre de... <coughs> Excuse me, I'm overcome. Um, <laughs> Pierre de Vellier was going anyway. He's going going in December, retiring, you see. But what happened is this. He told a load of deputies, this is not right, we should be having the cuts. And the cuts are sort of 850 million euros. Uh, and he said, well, I can't manage the, the forces in that way. And what happens is the president gets to hear about it. And the president takes his role as commander-in-chief. He's, he's commander-in-chief the same way as any other president is, way that, say, for example, Mr. Trump is. He said, I take it very seriously. I'm very concerned. You come to me, and you come to me very quietly. And therefore, he considers his position. What's really behind this now is the fact that... Uh, the French, for example, will not before 2025 get to their 2% uh, agreement about found spending. I got something else here. I can't remember a time 
not since the 19, early 1960s, after the Algerian War, and I actually don't remember that, um, I don't get a time when the uh, French military has behaved in this way. It's almost coup d'etat-type behaviour. So, did you make your bed this morning? If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. That was Bill McRaven, a former US Admiral, giving a speech to students at a graduation ceremony in 2014. In it, he gave his top tips for success, which he learned during his time training to be a US Navy SEAL. As commander of US Special Forces, Bill McRaven was the architect of the successful raid to find Osama bin Laden and also led the team that captured Saddam Hussein. Well, now he wants to change the world by passing on his life lessons in a book. It's called make your bed. I spoke to him earlier this week. I think every soldier, sailor, airman, marine that ever served in the military knows one of the first things you learn is to make your bed correctly, to keep your uniform straight and proper. And when I went through SEAL training, uh, the idea behind making your bed was, I think, twofold. Uh, We had to have our bed made every morning. It was inspected by our SEAL instructors. And, uh, And they impressed upon me two things. One was when you make your bed, it's a simple task. But frankly, it inspires you to do the next task and then the next and the next. And at the end of the day, you'll have accomplished a lot if you just kind of start your day off with a simple task. But the other one was you need to do the little things right. And so our bed had to be made exactly according to the Navy standards. Uh, You know, pillow right at the front of the bed. The wool blanket had to be folded rectangularly. The hospital corners had to be at 45 degrees. And their point there was... If you can't do the little things right, how are you ever going to run a complex Navy SEAL mission? So learn to do the little things right, and it'll help you do the big things right. You could say that you yourself in your career have changed the world. Uh, In particular, you were the commander who oversaw the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden, America's most wanted man. How do you think that will go down in history? Well, uh, I I often get asked, you know, what were your kind of feelings uh, as the mission was going on? And I I tell folks, look, it it was another mission. I understood the political ramifications of it, but, you know, I'd been involved in thousands of missions since 9-11. This one was um, actually not as complicated, uh, not as challenging as some of the other missions we did. We handpicked the right guys, so I had the right SEALs and the right uh, Army helicopter pilots. I knew they would do the job well. And so this was just a recognition that, hey, let, let's, uh, let's take on this mission. Uh, we'll be able to get it done. I'm not concerned about it. Um, you know, I hope at the end of the day what we did was we, you know, we served justice, not just for America. But I think everybody that uh, was affected by the terrorist attack on 9-11 uh, lost something. And, and we all recognize that bin Laden in some way, shape, or form was responsible for that. So this was bringing justice to bin Laden. So today's threat is widely perceived as being IS. Do you think now that Mosul has been taken back from IS that it will spring up somewhere else? Is it such a warped ideology that it just needs to find another place to grow? Is it something we have to live with or can this enemy be beaten? 
Yeah, I mean, the enemy in the human form can be beaten. The, ideology, the perverted ideology, I think, to your point, is, is something that will crop up uh, elsewhere. I mean, I, you know, Mosul has been retaken. We will soon hopefully take Raqqa back, and, and obviously that's their anchor point in the world, but the, the fighters will spread out. You know, you know, we obviously see ISIS in North Africa. We see it in, uh, in Afghanistan. You know, it's hard to beat an ideology, um, uh, and unfortunately, a perverted ideology that you see with ISIS. You did say that, that, that some people are evil, that there is evil out there. Is one of those people Saddam Hussein, who you visited every day after he was right. first captured? Uh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, what you, what you saw with Saddam uh, was, I think, evil personified, and, and actually with his uh, sons as well, Uday and Kusay. Uh, I mean, the things that they wrought upon the Iraqi people and the Kurds were, uh, were truly barbaric. Um, what was he like when you visited him? Well, I, I made a point when I visited him of not talking to him, and, and this was by design. Uh, we had him in a room probably about this size. I had a doctor and a, a, uh, and a soldier in there at all times to make sure, one, that, that he was healthy because we, we needed to make sure that we kept him healthy, uh, you know, safe, uh, and because we were going we to pass him back to the Iraqi people. Uh, so I had him for about 30 days before we passed him over to a, a, a military police unit that subsequently passed him to the Iraqis. But uh, the point was, right after he was captured, he still was arrogant. Uh, he still had this belief that somehow he was going to come back and be the president of Iraq. And so it was important for us to you know, put him in a situation where generals weren't coming by to visit him. And he wasn't living in a palace anymore. And, and you saw that arrogance start to fade pretty quickly when he realized that, you know, I'm no longer the president of Iraq. Uh, and, and I didn't engage him in conversation because that would have, I think, bolstered him. So for, you know, for 30 days, we just, we, you know, we took good care of him uh, as was appropriate. Uh, and then we passed him off. How is the relationship between Donald Trump and the military? I think the relationship between the president and the, the military is good. I don't know the president personally. I do know Secretary Mattis very well, Jim Mattis. Uh, when he was General Mattis, he and I served together several times, and I worked for him. We were next-door neighbors. He's a remarkable uh, Marine, a remarkable secretary, and I think he will, he will also serve the country very well. You say you haven't met Donald Trump. Mm. Might you send your book to him? Do you think, <laughs> do you think he makes his bed in the morning? Yeah. What could he learn from it, do you think? Well, uh, you know, it's uh, what he could learn from it, I think, is what everybody else uh, hopefully will learn uh, from it, uh, which is that there are going to be tough times. And in tough times, you expect leaders to step up and do the right thing, to inspire people. Uh, all of us look towards uh, our president or our prime minister or our chancellor, whatever it may be, for, for strong leadership, for inspiration. And so I would hope that uh, if President Trump were to get his hands on this book, that uh, he would take that away from him. That was Bill McRaven, whose book, Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World, is out now. Now, HMS Glasgow will be the name of the first Type 26 frigate. The first Sea Lord has announced the ships will be known as the City Class. We're joined today by Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Uh, Paul, um, the Defence Secretary on cutting the steel today for that first ship uh, said it's the year of the Royal Navy, is it? It is in a way, whether the Royal Navy is going the right way is a very different matter. Uh, I'm very dubious about the way in which the Navy is almost going to become a two-ship Navy. It'll be able to put one very large aircraft carrier to sea with all its support, and it'll be able to put one Trident missile submarine to sea at any one time. Uh, we're concentrating really on very narrow areas when we need much greater versatility for the kind of projects we're going to have in the future. Yes, the, the, the city-class frigates will certainly be worth a lot of jobs, and they'll 
be very fine ships of their sort. We just hope they work a little bit better than the Daring-class destroyers with all their problems. But the central thing is, we really are not thinking whether the kind of navy we're now getting is actually more suited to 20 or 30 years ago, upgraded, or else is going to be suited to the sorts of problems we have in the next 30 years. Earlier on in the programme, we talked about climate disruption as probably the biggest single security threat we all face. What, in sense, do these ships have to do with that? Uh, I think it's a lost opportunity, I'm afraid. Christopher, did you get uh, emotional today with the steel cutting? Good Lord, no. <laughs> I mean, it's not even British steel, is it? I mean, if you if you really wanted to get wise about it. Uh, no, very seriously, though, uh, biggest problem with the Royal Navy is it will not have, it certainly doesn't now have, enough sailors to drive these ships. And there's no sign that it's got a plan to find out why people are not joining the services. Mm. So that's the first biggest problem. Uh, the, other, the, the, the Type 26, well, jolly good, they'll, they will do a better job. In fact, in some ways, they'll have a more valuable task than the aircraft carriers. What we're seeing is, is a fact of naval design. Mm. You design a ship, it lasts 40 years. You design it, and you get it to sea 20, hours, 20 years after you said we need it. You're in a different world by then. Yes, no answer. Paul Rogers, do you make your bed in the morning? I make my bed, but more importantly, I feed the cat. That's the most important thing. <laughs> Christopher Lee. I feed the cat porridge. <laughs> and on that note, we will leave it for today. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SitRape and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SitRep. I'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.